On this episode of Cinema Smorgasbord Presents, we do our own stunts. We're one film away from Jackie Chan's breakout. But first, we need to check out 1978's Magnificent Bodyguards, originally released in 3D. <laughs> Welcome to We Do Our Own Stunts, a chronological look at the life and work of martial arts superstar Jackie Chan. I'm Doug Tilly, and with me is the world's deadliest man, Liam O'Donnell. How are you doing today, Liam? I wish you would stop telling people I'm the world's deadliest man, because people are starting to show up at my house and challenge me to fights. And the reality here, Doug, I'm not going to fight him. I'm just not. Yeah, but you can show off some of those caparilla skills that you've told me about. Okay, capoeira. <laughs> capoeira. And second of all, uh, I took <laughs> one semester-long class yeah. like over a decade ago. I don't think I still have any skills. So you're on your back. You position yourself with your arm. You push yourself up into a one-armed handstand, and you kick somebody in the side of the head. Never mastered the one-arm handstand. Though I mm. can do a cartwheel. And it, what's weird is I can still do a cartwheel, and I think people don't expect it now. You know, like, yeah. for, you know, audience doesn't know. They only see my face. But, uh, y'all, I'm a 5'7", I'm a 252-pound gentleman. I don't give off the vibe that I can do things physically. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. athletics is not the vibe I'm giving off. So the fact that I can still, you know, I can still do a cartwheel. When's I the last time you did a cartwheel? Oh, just recently, actually, uh, I went. I went back to my first show, Doug. I went to a show uh, in Chicago. It was kind of like I don't know if it was the first hardcore show in Chicago since the pandemic, but it was sure. my first one and the first one for a lot of people there that I talked to. And I wasn't going to do anything because I had a mask on. So like sure, sure. doing exercise with a mask sounds not fun. But this one band, Doug, they were so good. And I was like, all right, I'll just move around a teeny bit. And before you knew it, I was like spin kicking and doing hands, so are you, you know, doing You went doing to a hardcore show stuff. with your mask and you did a cartwheel? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Cartwheel is one of my signature moves. That's how okay. people know me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I'm a lot of... You hey, know, Liam's here. Someone's doing a cartwheel in the pit. <laughs> yeah, straight up. <laughs> for for the last, like, 20-some years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be fair, when I first started doing, like, that kind of move in the pit, that was more common. So, like, you know, uh, the sorts of insane things that people do at a hardcore show have, like, changed over time. But in the later 90s, there were a bunch of dudes who were into hardcore and into breakdancing. So they would bust out breakdancing moves in the fucking pit. So for me, doing a cartwheel was like low-key, like not that big a deal because there were dudes standing on their heads and doing black flips and shit. So I was sure. like, I was like, oh, yeah, all I can do is this dumb little cartwheel. But then I just kept doing it long after <laughs> those people like moved on with their lives. And so at a certain point, I realized, oh, yeah, seeing a 30 – I mean, I'm 42 now, but when I was – going to a lot more shows, seeing like a 36-year-old man do a cartwheel and a spin kick, people were like, what the fuck is going on? Like it was like I had beamed in from another planet, which is great because even though I was still dancing, I was older and not in good shape. So I could really only be in the pit for like one song and then be like, all right, I got to go in the back now and catch my breath. But all I needed was that one song and people would, would remember it. It was, it was pretty impressive for what was actually not a lot of exercise. Liam, Three dimensions. 
Yeah. Sometimes movies are in three dimensions, Doug. Did you know that? Yeah. You might remember, Liam, that uh, – remember a movie that it came out a few years ago? Uh, it was called Avatar. James Cameron directed it. No, I don't. I don't know anything about that. When it was released in the cinemas, uh, James Cameron was a, a very big proponent of, of kind of a new three-dimensional technology for people to enjoy films. And it became quite a thing for a while there to the point where people bought 3D televisions. They were enjoying 3D movies in their home. It felt like this was going to be the future. It feels like at this point in the year 2021 where we're, when we were recording this, Liam, that the 3D craze, the modern 3D craze, has kind of run its course. Would that be accurate, do you think? I think so. Did you know anyone who made the mistake of buying a 3D TV and the very expensive glasses? I don't know any wealthy people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, Doug, like, look, I don't dislike 3D. And in a theater, it can be fun. But I don't know why I'd want my TV to be in 3D. It just seems overwhelming. My understanding is also that the viewing angles were really bad at home yeah, when it came to... Sure. I mean... I thought the modern 3D technology was a lot of fun in some cases. Some some movies kind of really took advantage of it. I did find a lot of those movies that were kind of post-converted to 3D. They looked a little silly, and it just it actually was less immersive for me as opposed to more. But before this modern era of 3D, there were some other eras, Liam, including going back to the 1950s um, with movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon. But there was also kind of a craze in the late 70s, and the movie that we're going sure. to be talking about today, 1978's Magnificent Bodyguards, was part of that craze. And first, it was the very first Hong Kong film to ever be in 3D. That's pretty exciting. That's great. Love that. And this, of course, would have been the traditional anaglyph 3D, the red and blue uh, kind of, of, of 3D, those kind of glasses, little cardboard glasses on your face. Have you ever uh, gone to see a, a movie with uh, 3D glasses like that, Liam? Uh, yes, I think so. That's a good question, actually. I don't know. Have you? I've only ever, um, maybe when I was a child, though I don't have any specific memories, but certainly there were some, like, DVD releases of movies that included the well, you, versions. You, you know what? I, uh, I went to, uh, a friend, uh, a friend's house who is an obsessive movie person. Mm-hmm. Anyone from the Philadelphia area will immediately know who I mean. And he was he had figured out a way to do 3D in his home theater and he showed a 3D print of Jaws 3D. Right. Uh, and that was that at the time was with the old school glasses. He has now developed a new method with different glasses that he fabricated himself. Wow. But these yeah, but the this was like at the time, I think, in the more of a classic sort of mode. Uh, but I, I think a lot of my 3D experience was during the second wave of 3D when digital cinema sort of became a thing and 3D came back. Right. Yeah, I think that would probably be most of the people listening outside of very specific circumstances. I bought some 3D glasses uh, online years and years ago specifically because I wanted to watch a DVD version of the third Friday the 13th movie that I had, which of course was kind of famously released in 3D. And uh, I guess when that movie was released, one of the releases on 3D, it came with Friday the 13th branded 3D glasses. And when I purchased these online, they sent me like 10 3D glasses that all were branded with that Friday the 13th branding. Um, and I actually have given away, I think, all of them <laughs> over the years. There'd be a circumstance where someone in the, the, my city would be like, hey, does anyone have 3D glasses? I'm like, I do, as long as you don't mind Jason's face being all over them. But yeah, I think most of my experiences with that kind of 3D have been at home viewing. And to be honest, it doesn't work that well with home viewing for me. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the thing, right? Is that 
part of what's impressive about 3D for me in a theater is the size of it. Yeah. I don't know that it would feel the same on my television. Liam, this movie that we're going to be talking about today, Magnificent Bodyguards, was released in 3D. However, the version that you and I watched was not in 3D. And I feel a little ashamed about that. Now, there is a home release of this film that was available in the 3D format. It was the Japanese Laserdisc. And there was, at one point, a uh, a rip of that kind of floating around the internet. But unfortunately, it does not seem to currently be available in any form. So we had to watch it with our just two 2Ds, Liam, which is just, I mean, we just weren't getting the full experience. Though, when you watch uh... it... You are never under the illusion that this is anything but a movie that was made to be in 3D because there's a lot of shit coming right at you. This is probably a rare take, but mm-hmm. watching a 3D movie that really pushes the 3D in 2D is still kind of funny. Yeah, you know, I do it's agree. All the, I kind of wish just normal movies were like, yeah, then you punch at the camera. Well, why would I punch at the camera? Just do it, man. It's cool. Punch at the camera. Like, I love that. I think it's great. I, I get that it can be excessive. Like, uh, like the example you brought up, like Friday 13th 3D. I think sometimes people get a little annoyed, like, oh, this is getting excessive, if, if you're not watching it in 3D. But, uh, but in this case and in a few other cases, I just think it's fun. I just think it's a fun thing. But, I, but you know, it probably helps that I know going in, like, okay, they're going to do a bunch of ridiculous stuff, and that's going to be funny for me. It also kind of helps, I think, in this case, because martial arts movies of this era, of the late 70s, are filmed in kind of a very specific kind of way. There isn't a lot of variety in terms of the actual filmmaking techniques of the action, and this forces the filmmaker to kind of mix it up a little bit, right? Use some angles that you wouldn't normally see, even if it is just people punching right at the camera. Yeah, it's cool. It adds a little bit of difference. I, I, the effect of the various like knives and spears going at the camera uh-huh. is still fun for me. Yeah. Although, of course, they hold it a second too long just to make sure you saw it. <laughs> but that's fun. I don't know. I, I don't know. It's it to me. I, everything about it is just fun. So I should note before we get started here that. Uh, the last film that we covered on We Do Our Own Stunts was Snake and Crane, Arts of Shaolin. We both liked that movie very much. Uh, it did not do very well at the box office. So at that time, uh, Jackie Chan appealed to his manager, Willie Chan, to talk to Lo Wei about letting him to do a comedy. So at that point, he was like, look, uh, we've made all these movies together. They're not doing very well. I'm, I'm considered box office poison. Let me try to at least do a comedic movie that, uh, that is more to my style. And so Loway eventually relented, and they went. Uh, Loway didn't direct it. Another director did. They went and made a movie called Half a Loaf of Kung Fu, which we will cover in a few episodes. So at this point, after Snake and Crane Arts of Shaolin, he made a kung fu comedy, but Lo Wei watched it and hated it, so he put it on the shelf until 1980, so no one ever saw it at the time. So we'll get back to that in a few episodes. So even though this isn't the next movie chronologically, uh, it's the next movie that was released. The, this, uh, the next movie to be released, I should say, is Magnificent Bodyguards. Isn't that exciting, Liam? That is so exciting. <laughs> it's important to note for the diehards who might be listening. Yeah, no, I get, I get that. I find myself though, um, I like the place where we're at. So I and I know where we're going. So I'm not as like worried about sort of the chronology of it all as I was at one point. Um, because Doug, like starting from here, I just feel like it's all gravy for us, and that's what matters to me. It, it'll be a little up and down over the next like five films or so, but you're right. We're 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 approaching the golden age, and you can kind of feel 
the buildup to it. It kind of feels kind of natural in the way that the movies have been improving a little bit as we've been going along anyway. And Jackie Chan has get, gotten better as an actor. He's gotten better as a kind of a uh, choreographer. So, I mean, you feel like we're reaching up to something good. And, uh, yeah, that's coming really soon. And maybe we're already here to something good, depending on our thoughts on Magnificent Bodyguards. So this is a little quote from uh, Jackie Chan's book, I Am Jackie Chan. Uh, this is right after Snake and Crane Arts of Shaolin. Meanwhile, Lo immediately put me to work on a new project, Magnificent Bodyguards, whose only original aspect was that it was shot in 3D. Not that the technology added anything to the movie. In order to show off the effects, we were instructed to kick and punch towards the camera. As you might guess, this made my role as stunt coordinator very difficult. Usually in a fight, the two combatants are concentrating on trying to hit each other. Lo refused to talk to me throughout the shoot, directing me by proxy through the DP. I'm not sure exactly why he was so angry looking back. I think now that maybe he was offended that Chen Chi Hua and I hadn't followed in his footsteps, quote-unquote, learning from the master. He was a proud man, and despite all of his bluster, he saw himself as a kind of father figure to me. And to tell the truth, I did learn a lot from him, a little about what to do and a lot about what to avoid. It was only when Bodyguards rapped that Lo finally approached me, a triumphant expression on his face. He announced that he'd commissioned a script for a comedy vehicle of his own, which would show me and audiences everywhere what martial arts humor was really about. It's called Spiritual Kung Fu, said Lo. I got some great ideas for it already. Just walking up the stairs to get here, I was laughing. So this was uh, another comedy that Lo is going to try called Spiritual Kung Fu, which we will also get to pretty soon. I, I think what we're really getting at here is, so part of the theme of this show has been this kind of relationship between Lo Wei and Jackie Chan, which is rather notorious. Uh, and Jackie has really kind of held Lo Wei up as an example of what not to do in a lot of that part of his career. Lo Wei had a bit of an ego uh, since he was one of the people marked with discovering, let's say, uh, Bruce Lee, and uh, at least cer certainly popularizing him. And his attempt to do that with Jackie Chan was a failure. But I do think that as we've gone through these movies, Liam, that we've seen that there's a bit more nuance to that than maybe expected. These movies are not all universally terrible, and they don't all use Jackie Chan badly. It's just that we, as people in 2021 know what the Jackie Chan character is because he'd been successful for decades even by the time that that we kind of encountered him on a wide scale. But at the time, there was no Jackie Chan character. So the fact that Lo Wei didn't see it should not be seen as unusual, right? I mean, but the funny thing about watching something like Magnificent Bodyguards is if that movie specifically was a failure and there was no other attempt to, like at that point, Lo Wei was like, look, this guy will use him to be a stunt coordinator and he'll be a supporting player. That could have been his career. There, there was not, there's not a, a destined path for Jackie Chan because of his talents that he was going to be um, a major, huge martial arts superstar. He, he absolutely could have flamed out like a lot of people, like some of the, his, uh, his, uh, um, some of his friends that were in the Chinese opera schools had just as much kind of physical talent as him, but never became mainstream stars. But Jackie Chan, I mean, it, it's only because of the next movie we're going to cover that that transition was able to occur, and that easily could not have occurred. Yeah, yeah, I, I still, yeah, it's hard. It's hard not to view the history of their relationship through the fucking cultural monolith that Jackie Chan became. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, absolutely. There are probably listeners of the podcast that, though they appreciate Jackie Chan and they're interested in Jackie Chan because of this, don't really understand what a fucking phenomenon he was. Like, I I, I hear him referenced across culture all the time, sure. but sometimes what they're talking about is the guy who co-starred in the Rush Hour movies. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? So they recognize his name, and, and maybe in our, you know, uh, let's say... 
uh, how do I put this mildly, white supremacist Western culture, maybe uh, maybe uh, recognizing him by name is kind of a big step in some ways. But he was for a long time the biggest name in movies worldwide. Yeah. That's just a fucking financial fact. And so knowing that that's where he was going, thinking of Lo Wei being like, yeah, he's a stunt coordinator. He's all right. I don't know. Kind of a dick. You know what I mean? It's like, yo, man, like you've got so much potential there that is not being realized. It's just hard. But you're right. Like the movies aren't universally bad. He's not. How, how can you say he's misusing him when no one knows? I mean, it's not like. I'm not convinced Jackie Chan was sitting there being like, I know exactly what I'm supposed to do with my career. Obviously, he didn't, you know? So yeah, I, I, I should be more sensitive. You're right. But there's a part of me that's like, nah, fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's also, um, there's a suggestion, certainly with what I was just reading out loud, that there might be a recognition by Lo Wei that Jackie Chan has comedic talents but that Jackie Chan himself is not funny. In fact, he, he in it, that uh, that part from the book, it continues on with him specifically saying directly to Jackie, "You aren't funny." So the this this wish for Jackie Chan to be in more comedic roles, he's going to basically find a funny script and make him do that work, as opposed to him being kind of naturally funny. And maybe I think that's kind of the conflict that we're that's at the core of what we're talking about is that whatever gifts. Jackie Chan has, whether it be for comedy or martial arts, Lo Wei really wants to mold them in his own image so he can say that he created it. So Jackie Chan's recent autobiography, Never Grow Up, just like a lot of the movies we've been covering recently on this podcast, he barely mentions that, in fact, I don't think Magnificent Bodyguards is mentioned by name at all, but he does mention this, which will be interesting moving into our next film. He says, I'd already been to hell and back as a martial artist, fight director, and actor, and still hadn't made a name for myself. I was having a rough time under contract with Lo Wei, starring in film after film I didn't want to make. I could clearly see the problems with them, but no one wanted to listen to what I had to say. I wasn't allowed to challenge the producers and directors or helm any films myself. Then one day, the independent film producer, Mr. Ng Si Yuen, came to see me and said he wanted to borrow me from Lo Wei to make a new movie. And of course, that would be Snake in the Eagle's Shadow. And we're going to get into that story a lot on our next episode. Uh, last thing I wanted to read from is from the book Jackie Chan Inside the Dragon by Clyde Gentry III. Trying yet another approach, Lo paired Chan with two other heavies, James Tian and Bruce Lee lookalike, Bruce Lung, for a group protagonist kung fu flick entitled Magnificent Bodyguards. Boasting some fairly amateurish special effects, the low-budget film is released in 3D to enliven the shoddy plotline, which has our three heroes escorting a rich family carrying a sick relative to safety. Their journey takes them into harm's way at every turn. They meet up with Chinese natives, monks, and an evil king who controls their safe passage. Midway through the film, Lowe's production company stumbled across the score for Star Wars, so they pull several tracks for the film's cheapo soundtrack. Star Wars' famous trench battle music even plays over the film's final fight, and we'll talk about that in a little bit as well. Uh, I don't want to get into, at this point, our thoughts generally on Magnificent Bodyguards, but I will say that compared to a lot of the pre-Snake and the Eagle Shadow movies that we've seen starring Jackie Chan, I, this one's a lot of fun. And I actually kind of take issue with the knocks against the film's story. Not that it's a great story necessarily, but I found it engaging. The twist is ridiculous, but it's also one of those things where it feels like it is all building to something, and then the big reveal happens, and then it leads to a big fight, which is exactly what I want at a movie like this. I also like the idea that it isn't just Jackie Chan starring in it. It's part of kind of three different characters that are kind of at the forefront. Um, and, and so it kind of has a different feel 
than especially the low way directed movies that we've covered so far. So um, I think that that um, I'm feeling pretty positive about Magnificent Bodyguards, and I think that you are as well, Liam. Any thoughts before we go into our first break and come back and talk about the movie? Uh, I'm just excited to discuss it. Let's just jump in the, <laughs> to, into the movie itself because I think there's. I mean, I, I agree. It's not the most professional thing. It's very much a B-movie borrowing from other movies. But I think we both had a lot of fun with it, and I can't wait to dive in. Um, just one thing before we get to that break, which is that the version there's a, a number of versions of this movie out uh, available in the world. Some of them have actually had the Star Wars music excised from them, but generally the versions that are most commonly available still included. It's a pretty rough looking movie in terms of the prints that are out there. Like even the Blu-ray that's available for Magnificent Bodyguards, it does not look as sharp as a lot of the movies that we've covered recently. I mean, we were lucky. We've seen it in widescreen and, and subtitles, so at least we're getting a, a full look at it. Uh, and I wonder, Liam, if it's because of it being filmed in 3D that that actually necessitated that maybe the 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 film quality wasn't as good. I really don't know much about it. I just wonder if that might have been a contributing factor because, again, it, this looks so much worse than a lot of the films we've been covering lately. Yeah, I mean, but... I, a, I think there are movies that don't look great or probably didn't look great for a long time that were restored because of their popularity. You know Certainly. what I mean? Certainly. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if this movie, if it if it had more impact outside of its primary, you know what I mean? Like if it had made a bigger impact into the U.S., into the grindhouse circuit, if we would have a home video now that looked better. I don't know. Maybe not. I'm not sure. Yeah, look, maybe, again, maybe it's just the original elements were just in rough shape. And maybe someone will find the more versions of the original elements and we'll get a, a version that looks a little bit better in the next few years. But I'm, it is notable that this movie looks so much worse than some of the movies that we've been covering recently. Um, but uh, certainly, again, certainly very watchable. And it's hard to complain. I've been watching a few martial arts movies lately that are, you know, in those kind of rough, full-screen, dubbed really shaky prints and you you uh kind of lose your appreciation if you haven't watched those for a while of how even something like this looks amazing in comparison uh but with that said let's take our break when we come back we'll talk about 1978's magnificent bodyguards <laughs> Kung Fu expert is hired to form a team of guards to escort a dying man to a doctor. In order for them to reach the doctor in time, they must pass through the stormy hills, which are plagued by bandits, savages, evil monks, and more. It's 1978's Magnificent Bodyguards, also known as Magnificent Guardsmen internationally. Uh, this is from, of course, 1978. From Jackie Chan's book, he describes it as this. A woman hires me to escort her sick brother to the doctor, but in order to get there, we must pass through Stormy Hills, an area controlled by bandits. Imagine my surprise when I learned that the sick brother is actually a bandit too. Spoiler alert. The only thing that's halfway interesting about the film is that it was Hong Kong's first movie filmed in 3D. 
It was obvious that Lo Wei was beginning to run out of ideas. He even used the Star Wars theme as for the soundtrack music for the final fight scene, displaying an absence of originality, not to mention a lack of concern for copyright law. There were some funny moments, though, even if they were not intentional. At one point in the film, unable to fight off our attackers, we flee into a temple and ring the temple bells to knock them out. Well, all of them were pretty tough fighters, but none of them could survive my bells. That's not exactly how it actually plays out in the film, is it, Liam? No, I, I'm so confused by that, actually. Yeah, I think maybe Jackie wasn't remembering that sequence uh, very accurately, but we'll get to that in just a little bit. This was originally released in April of 1978, April 27th, just a month after the last film that we covered on We Do Our Own Stunts, directed, of course, by Low Way. Uh, at this point, there's only going to be two more Low Way directed Jackie Chan films that we're going to be covering on the show, Spiritual Kung Fu and Dragon Fist, but those are going to come later, and written by Gu Long, who uh, has written uh, several of the Low Way films that we've covered so far, including The Killer Meteors and To Kill with Intrigue. We've already mentioned, to some extent, the cast. We have Jackie Chan here as Lord Ting Chung, James Tien, who you probably recognize from his work with Bruce Lee um, as, as, as Tsang, the, the, the master skinner, the guy who likes to skin people alive. And we have Bruce Lung, uh, Lung Su Lung, as Chang, uh, the uh, deaf, uh, I guess, leather worker in the film. Uh, some other recognizable faces as well, but those are certainly our core trio liam what did you think of magnificent bodyguards doug this is a very fun movie now i don't want people to think i'm saying this is a very good movie (laughs) it is um it is a film more interested in ridiculous fight scenes and uh strange goofy characters occasional jokes uh, and, and really extended fight sequences than it is in like a discernible plot. In fact, uh, I would say that the when the central plot itself is revealed all to be a ruse and the ruse is utterly unbelievable, <laughs> it doesn't matter because yeah. you weren't that invested in the plot in the first place. Uh, uh, in fact, one of the reveals is so ridiculous that I just fucking loved it. And it made the it made the overall reveal even better. Uh, the the you know the only negative thing is that our heroes turn out to basically be glorified cops. That's a little bit of a bummer, I guess. <laughs> but otherwise it's it's great. And and what's you know it was a real reminder to me people who've been listening to this podcast might have got a little bummed on how often we were not excited on some of these movies you know start at least one of like, us yeah <laughs> I, I, let's let's back that up i have often not liked a lot of the movies we've watched i don't think you liked a lot of them either but sure but i i was even more negative than you the what i was looking for though was not like angly you know art house cinema what i was looking for was fun and a lot of those movies were not as fun as one would hope. This movie is fucking a good time. It's fun. And the I you know, I'm sure it would be fun in 3D in a theater too, but at mm-hmm. home watching them just punch the camera or throw things at the camera for no reason because I don't have the 3D, still fun. Still fun. And I and I would argue that while it's not as high of quality as some of Jackie Chan's martial arts would get in his own films, it's still a pretty good movie, even just for like the fight sequences. So yeah, absolutely. I think the combo of like fun times with uh pretty exciting fighting, even if I agree that some of the special effects are kind of hokey, 
Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. I had a good time with this movie, and it it kind of h- puts me on this thing where I feel like we're on a good time fun train for most <laughs> of this podcast till we get to like the nineties. <laughs> I can't promise that they're all going to be good time fun, Liam, but I can say that uh, for at least the next few months <laughs> we'll have a good time with the Jackie Chan movies that we're going to be watching. I also enjoy Magnif- Magnificent Bodyguards uh, quite a bit. It is a very much a kind of fantasy themed martial arts movie so we have these lead characters who are you know they can fly around they can their martial arts skills are right from the beginning are are basically superior to everyone around them that's one of the things that we mentioned in the last film that we covered on our last episode is that we've already watched a lot of these jackie chan movies where he starts out like having very little martial arts skill so you never get to see him kind of let loose in his fight scenes until the very end of those movies this one you get to see him right from the very first scene be very impressive with his kung fu so i and since we also have other characters there's a lot of kind of group martial arts sequences in the movie which i think are a lot of fun as well we'll get to some of those in just a little bit the plot itself is kind of it it, there's a lot of twists and turns to it but at its core it's very simple right it's there's a woman who uh who has hired a bodyguard, in this case, Jackie Chan, to help her, escort her up a mountain, and that mountain is covered in bandits. And the reason she wants to be escorted is that her brother is sick, she has him in, like, this uh, sedan chair, so he's being carried, and we can never see him, he's hidden away from us the entire movie. Jackie Chan's character, he gets two other people, Bruce Lung and uh, James Tien, and all three of them are going to escort her and her people up the mountain, past the bandits, so he can get help for his illness, the her brother. And that's it. That's the whole core of the movie. And then it gets goofy on top of that, especially because we are obviously aware that whoever is inside that sedan chair, whoever her brother is that we can't see, that he's going to be important later on in the plot. We'll talk about that ending in just a little bit. Uh, we'll, we'll give it all away. It's not. I don't think it ruins the movie to know about it, but it is quite something. Um, as a, in terms of a plot structure, does that work for you, Liam? The idea that we're where you have this character because at first it looks like Jackie Chan is going to be the star of this movie. He sort of becomes part of an ensemble as it goes along. Was that a disappointment for you? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think it's pretty effective to show that he is like the toughest tough there is. Right. And then they meet a guy who he's like, oh, that guy's tougher than me. He should come with us. <laughs> I, <laughs> I like how that tough that. guy that they find, he's like, and also I'll, I'll be the leader. And, he, and they're like, yeah, he probably should be the leader. He's tougher than all of us. He likes to skin people alive, and he's a good guy. I mean, they do the classic martial arts thing of like, we're going to introduce someone who seems uh, more than human, and that is the human dart. This man throws darts from everywhere. No one can stop his darts. He's yeah. basically immortal because of his darts. And then Lord, what what was the character's name? Lord T. Wen or Ty? I forget the the the, the, the Skinner the, guy. What is his, the character's name? I think it's Lord Sang in the movie. But uh, but I mean it's probably in different uh, translations, right? But yeah, so you're talking about the James Tian character. Yeah. Uh, so so Master Sang shows up to the dark guy. And just whips the dark guy's ass. Like, there's a whole room full of people who are scared of dark guy. So then Master Sang shows up, and they're all scared of him, too. And dark guy's like, I'm the fucking dark guy. Who the fuck are you? (laughs) And Sang's like, I'm the dude who's going to literally rip your face off. And then after that, you're like, well, then that's the toughest guy. So when he shows up, Jackie Chan, who seems like a pure force for chaos and anarchy, and then his deaf leather friend who's like not as tough as he is but still must be pretty tough they both go oh master sang all right cool you're in charge now man so like whatever you want to do is cool it's just a reminder of like whatever so that by the time we do get to the ending and you're like well 
the, you know, this is the king of the bandits. What are these three guys going to do? It's not a surprise when they're like, oh, we're just kill all of you. It's fine. <laughs> like, that was actually the plan from the first, so let's just do it. It was like, it, it actually kind of, in a weird way, made sense, considering how senseless it all is. One of the odd things about this film is that it seems very much inspired by American Westerns as yes, they're kind of very much. moving along. It's almost like a stagecoach, how it's treated where they're attacked by different kind of obstacles as they go along. It's very episodic for the first half of the movie. And one of the things that this movie includes is a song where this stormy mountain song plays and, and the lyrics are actually about our characters traveling through it. It's, I have to be honest, I love this song. I was so It happy was great. It was so good. <laughs> it has this kind of um like a synthy high pitched thing that goes. I mean, it's a real I'm gonna put the song as the closing credit song of our episode today so people can uh, check it out. But yeah, the the Stormy Mountain song was a highlight in this movie and an unexpected one. But another thing that kind of connects it to the American Western is, and this maybe wasn't as fun, uh, depending on your point of view is that there are some of the bandits dress and act like the indigenous people that would have appeared in classic American Westerns. And I mean that they are dressed with the with wigs and headdresses and they like have spears and they're like jumping up and down. And I mean, it is clearly meant to evoke that. Would you say that as well? So if you read the description of the film, a lot of people refer to these people as native Chinese or indigenous Chinese, yeah. which, by the way, doesn't make that, any sense yeah. because all of these characters are some flavor of uh, uh, from the area. Now, yes. is it true that there were, uh, uh, despite our tendency to sort of make everything a monolith, is it true that in the history of the country we now call China, there's been a variety of different ethnic groups and some of them were... Uh, different culturally and how they presented themselves. Sure, sure, sure. I will say that that it's not a direct comparison to indigenous Americans because there's some aspects of their outfits that look more like Conan the Barbarian than yes, like, you know absolutely. what I mean? There's certain brass things. That but what really sells it is that they make a noise yes. that's meant to be like the noise that uh, you know Native Americans make in those Western films. And it is a direct reference to Western films. Uh, and that is, for me, a bummer. However, I get the idea that like uh, what we're supposed to, to, to take is that there's this mountain of bandits and that the underlings of the bandits are from some culture that is different than the culture of the people trying to get over the mountain. Yes. They're like mountain people. Sure, sure, sure. But I think they are very loosely, without understanding maybe some of the genocidal history involved, <laughs> trying to reference – you know, Native Americans as depicted in Westerns because there's a lot of things. This movie, don't be wrong, it has a lot of kung fu movie cliches and it's referencing sure, a lot of different kung fu movies. But you would have to have never seen a Western before to not get that this is also borrowed from Westerns. If you've seen even one Western, let alone a few classic Westerns, you'll immediately get the vibe of like, oh, this is kind of like a Western film. It bummed me out when they started, when they like, okay, visually it's impressive, Doug, when they come up over the hills, you know, that's something sure. that a lot of Western films have used, but when they were making the, the noise, it bummed yeah. me out real hard. Yeah, yeah, and I think understandably so. There's a part where this kind of convoy, our good guys, let's say, um, a convoy of characters, of heroes, are going through, um, like, a, the between two mountains, and these 
characters start dumping rocks on them. Not not the greatest looking sequence in the entire movie, but that feels like it's straight out of a western. And yeah, there's a lot of the, uh, for lack of a better word, whooping uh, sounds that are coming from these characters. I mean, you could probably explain it away in your head that these are just characters that are acting this ridiculous way because they're underlings of these um, of these. A kind of evil characters within it, but they're obviously meant to be evoking a um, quote unquote savage look. And I, that it's something that it, it's kind of, it, it does, it doesn't kind of blend well. And it's also really kind of off putting when you watch it in the film. Well, it's also not necessary, right? Like yeah. y- you could, they could be, I mean, I'm not a, uh, a total, you know, Chinese historian or anything crazy like that. But I have taken enough uh, uh, classes in uh, East Asian history to know that there were uh, different ethnic groups in what we now call China, and there were conflicts between some of these groups. And you could have the themes of a Western without having people making fake Native American noises. You know what I mean? Yeah, like absolutely. you could create that dynamic and then have them look like any number of, uh, you know, nomadic. Uh, Groups or I mean, part of the reason they probably aren't playing with some of those uh, cultural tropes, Doug, is that many of those groups weren't uh, the people genocided in China. They were the people conquering China and making yeah. all the people the fancy outfits their 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 little uh, servants. So uh, you know, it's they're trying to create a certain dynamic that you really find in Western films that you don't find in uh, in in a lot of East Asian literature. And I get. I get the reference. I get the tongue-in-cheek. It's supposed to be funny, I think. But uh, for us, as people who know the brutal and uh, genocidal history of that relationship, it's not fun. It's not fun at all, actually. It's one of the reasons where I tend to prefer Westerns that don't have any uh, Native American characters in them. Or if they are Native American characters, I want them to be getting revenge. Because uh, the classic sort of white man versus uh, the the savage uh, people out in the prairie, that's a bummer. That's a bummer in any form, Doug. Yeah. It makes I mean, me one real of the, sad. One of the things I like about spaghetti Westerns is that they don't, uh, as often tend to tangle with the indigenous aspects. So of course, then they also then will have Mexican banditos played by a white guy in brown face. So also a problem. Also, a also problem. a problem. So I mean, it, it, here I don't think the movie w- wants to tangle with that baggage whatsoever. But it also seems to lack awareness regarding it, and it's right. something that's that from from modern eyes can be a little uh, off putting, and also potentially off putting. Is the level of violence in this movie, Liam? Woo. I think it's by far the most violent film that we've uh, covered on We Do Our Own Stunts. Now, violence is a weird thing to talk about in terms of martial arts movies, which are inherently violent because there are fight scenes that are you know constantly occurring in all of these movies. But the level of kind of gory violence in right. this is much higher than what we've encountered so far. We see a character... In fact, one of our lead good guy characters takes a character off screen, chops his arms off, and throws his arms out the door. That's our dark guy that you were referring to earlier. His hands are so impressive that he has to slice them off. And again, that guy's reputation, our lead good guy character, is for skinning people alive. And we actually do see some face skinning in this movie. So, uh, it, Doug, it does, there does, are yeah. at least three times when he rips someone's face off. Where the f- effect, though basic, was effective enough that I was stoked. Like yeah. I was just like, "Yeah, fuck yeah!" Like, "Whoa!" Because you never get that level of violence. I loved it, and I get that. <laughs> that's not why a lot of people come to these movies. But for me, it is a welcome addition. I'm into it. It's great. 
Yeah. So I was going to ask, did, did you find that distracting at all? It no. seems like it added to the experience yeah. for you. It's like, uh, I don't know if you ever saw uh, Cutthroat's Nine. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. The the sequence in there where the guy gets stabbed in the guts and it's all of a sudden it's like a, it's less of a Spanish Spanish uh, spaghetti western and more of a Italian gore film. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Loved it. It's so unexpected. It just really works. Same in this. Now, granted, I will say the special effects might have been helped by the graininess and blur of the copy sure. we were watching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe if this was a UHD transfer from <laughs> the negative, I would have been like, oh, that looks stupid. But it, it did. It What's different for me with this gore than maybe the gore in some horror movies is that it also does it quickly so that you get the effect and then it moves on because right. maybe they know that it doesn't look great. I don't know what the decision is, but I like that. I like that you see just enough of it to be horrified and then we keep <laughs> it moving. And that's exactly <laughs> makes sense. That mixture of Kung Fu movie and gore uh, isn't uncommon, right? Chan Chay's movies are kind of notoriously very bloody. Uh, and th there's, even in a lot of his Shaw Brothers kind of, of really mainstream work, there tends to be like people's bodies ripped apart and limbs cut off and things like that. But I have to say, it, it does, it was surprising to see in this movie, which I wouldn't say it necessarily has a light tone, but it's not a heavy tone, certainly compared to some no, of the movies yeah. we, we've covered, that when people are killed in this movie, it's so, like one of the things, and, and again, well, we're going to talk about the ending in just a little bit, but the woman who hires Jackie Chan and ends up, you know, hiring everyone to to kind of helm this mission across the mountain, <laughs> when they get to their destination, it's revealed that she is the daughter of a bandit. And then, like, there's a big fight scene that breaks out. She gets killed, <laughs> like, minutes later, even though she was up to that point considered, like, this literally, like, an hour and a half worth of content where she is the good guy she's killed very unceremoniously in this movie and has her face ripped off and the movie does not necessarily linger on it in any particular way yeah i i thought that was great <laughs> <laughs> i loved it i mean i i think that's probably where this movie kind of bumped up from just kind of fun to a lot of fun for me is that is that completely unnecessary gore uh, because it, you know, it it wasn't what the movie was about, but it was used in ways that kind of like made it more fun. <laughs> I also like the idea that this guy's reputation is as someone who skins people alive. But when you hear that, you don't think he's just going around ripping people's faces off. <laughs> no, that's I mean he that's what he's doing. What I think is crazy is that people keep challenging him. Like, well, what are you, the Skinner guy? That's fine. I'm like, he's going to rip your face off. What are you talking about? Uh, so our other two leads here, as we've already mentioned, are played by James Tien and Bruce Lung. James Tien, probably recognizable um, for his roles with Bruce Lee, as I mentioned earlier, including playing Bruce Lee's cousin in The Big Boss, as well as in Fist of Fury. I think we've talked about him briefly before. We'll see him in a few more Jackie Chan movies before this is all said and done, including Spiritual Kung Fu, The Fearless, Fearless Hyena, and Dragon Fist. Uh Liam, what did you think of both James Tian and Bruce Lung in this film? I mean, they they kind of share equal billing with Jackie Chan. James Tian yeah. becomes the leader of the group. But in terms of screen time, it's all fairly equal. But what sure. did you think of their performances in this? Um, Bruce Lung didn't really shine for me. I mean, he's kind of funny at times, but he didn't really shine for me till the final fight where they really let him go. It's almost yeah. like he does some cool stuff early on, but it's almost like he's holding back. And then that last fight, he goes crazy with it. And he's given 
some opportunities to do some really like over the top acting when he's being attacked by the head of the bandits. Yeah. I forget the dude's name, but uh, he's, he gets to do some like reactions that are like, he's selling some shit that just isn't happening and he's really fucking selling it. And that's great. (laughs) But prior to that fight, he was just, he felt like a comedic, Sort of aside, you know, like he was just, definitely supposed to be the comic relief character, as as we already yeah. mentioned. He's he's deaf in the film that does play into the plot a few times. Yeah, I mean, it it, it just was like what he didn't really stick out to me. Uh, James Tien, I, I love that he's the the face ripper offer. That's great, but also he's just <laughs> tough. I feel like uh, honestly, when you you sort of asked me earlier on, and I want to circle back to this this idea that like it seems at first that Jackie Chan is the star, and then maybe he's not the star. But, like, I think he manages to both be the most interesting, the most funny in a way, and kind of have very heroic moments where he's, like, more heroic than the other sort of members of the group. Especially when you find out what his motivations were. Yeah, so it becomes his movie still in a way, even though it is an ensemble movie. And so I felt like he overshadowed them, even though at the end it's just the three of them versus – a gentleman who might be immortal until the end. You just don't, he seems so tough that it's just those three guys trying to take this guy down. Uh, I still was more focused on Jackie Chan and his fighting than I was the other two. For those who don't know who Bruce Long is, you probably, you may know him as one of the Bruce Lee imitators. Uh, He was uh, credited not just under the name Bruce Long, but Bruce Lang, Bruce Leung. He was a Bruce Plotation guy, though I do think that he's probably best known in, the West, uh, for him appearing as the Beast in Stephen Chow's Kung Fu Hustle, um, and in that not playing a very Bruce Lee-like character, but obviously cast in that film because not only was he an impressive martial artist, but also because of Stephen Chow's love for Bruce Lee. And if you don't know him from that, you may know him from the notorious martial arts movie, The Dragon Lives Again, which is the film where Bruce Lee dies, is sent to hell, and has encounters with James Bond and Popeye and Zatoichi and all sorts of bizarre characters. It is a truly weird and strange and wonderful movie. But I always thought of Bruce Lung's career as being a little bit sad because he obviously is a very, very talented martial artist and probably could have been successful in his own right, but kind of got wrapped up in that wave of Bruce Lee imitators. I also have to say that in comparison to a lot of the other Bruce Lee imitators, he looks almost nothing like Bruce Lee. I mean, he really looks nothing like him in terms of build or in in kind of any way whatsoever. But it was really fun to have him in this film. And like yourself, Liam, he doesn't really get to let loose big time until uh, the final kind of group fight sequence. But he really does kind of show off some skills there. I do want to ask you something about the 3D aspect of this. We've already talked about it a little. There's a lot of things kind of getting thrown at the camera. Punches, kicks, projectile weapons. Do you find that those aspects, we've already talked about that you kind of find them fun in the movie as a whole. But in terms of the quality of the fights, do, does that take away from them at all? No, not at all. It, 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 in fact, it can break up what might seem a little monotonous. I love yeah. martial arts films, but sometimes it can get a little tedious if there's too much of the same thing. And so, you see a lot of the same things in these movies, for yeah, sure. Yeah. So those moments of I'm punching at the camera, I'm throwing knives at the camera. It just adds a little bit of flavor. It's fun. It's. It, I think variety. As much as I have nothing against two guys just trying to punch each other, uh, a little variety in the fight scenes just makes it more fun. And I really think, though, I don't know that this film pushes the general envelope of like acrobatics or some of the other things that people sure. like. In general, these are interesting fight scenes. And that's not 
easy to do. But with having a variety of different weapons, a variety yeah. of different characters, mm-hmm. a bunch of characters that feel like stock characters from other Kung Fu movies, like, oh, look, it's the guy with the spear. Oh, look, it's the monk with the big thing. Oh, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. That just made it that much better. The fact that every fight had at least one guy with an irrationally heavy object. You know that guy? <laughs> In all these movies, there's one guy who's like, I have a big bat or a, a big ball or a big fucking whatever the fuck. And it always makes that sound, that whoop sound whenever they swing it. <laughs> fucking love it. I love it. And yet he always gets his ass kicked because that guy sucks in every yeah. movie. Yeah. Perfect. And also, like, love the, it. you got these incredibly fast punching characters against this guy with this lumbering weapon that whoop, is impossible. Whoop. Well, but then when they steal the weapon, right? Jack, that's one of the things that makes Jackie Chan's character so good in this movie. He occasionally steals someone else's weapon and then kicks their ass with it. And I love it. So I agree with you. I think the 3D actually adds to the fight scenes because it means that it really mixes up how they are filmed. But one thing that I did find distracting in this movie is that there's a lot of sped up movements. So uh, you, this could either be from them actually speeding up the, the film or, or undercranking or removing frames. So when characters are throwing a punch, suddenly they move unnaturally quickly. I don't know if you noticed that a lot throughout the movie, but it seemed like it was in every fight scene there was a few movements like this where characters were kind of jerkily moving around because of these frames being missing. Did that, did that, did that distract you at all? Did not notice at all. <laughs> Liam doesn't care. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I should have noticed. I will say the the whole thing felt choppy to me, and I wrote that off to maybe it being a bad copy, and I didn't think about it as being part of the movie. I think it was a uh, attempt by Lo Wei to speed up things a little bit, but also maybe it was a way to kind of reinforce that these people are not just great martial artists. They are unnaturally great, that they're more like gods than they are men. They're, they're superheroes, right? So this is a way to reinforce that a little bit. Um, Liam, did you have a favorite fight in the film? I mean, I think my uh, I really like the first fight where Jackie Chan is just embarrassing the various other bodyguards who want to come on the trip. Okay, so but that's I, not so the very first fight is him against. Oh, that's true. No, no, no. Yeah, the, the 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 when he meets the woman and he's gonna he's trying to sell himself and she's like, which yeah. of these bodyguards do you want to take? Exactly. And he's like, None of them. They suck. <laughs> I like that fight, but really the the highlight for me is the final. Doug, it, there's a fight that starts right at the big reveal. And uh, you know the 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 should we talk about the end now or we, you still want to hold it? Uh, it? Let's hold it for just a little okay. bit because I want to talk about the that fights kind that of big yeah. fight because it invited it involves so many different people and so many different cuts and angles of various people fighting was my favorite. There's a part in the film where our three characters enter a temple. It's a Shaolin temple or Shaolin looking temple, and they refer right. to that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, they are accosted by these giant bells, which is what we were referring to. When Jackie Chan described this movie, he described it as them being the ones who kind of shake these bells in order to um, to attack other people. That's not the way it plays out in the movie. What happens is that these bells are rung, and our characters are, are so overwhelmed by the sound that they're knocked unconscious. Of course, except for the fact that one of those characters is deaf and is able to not be affected by it. Then the room fills up with these 18 Shaolin monks and because our characters have not been completely knocked out by the sound, they then uh, get into this huge, huge fight scene against these characters. And I loved it. That is my... I, I think the final fights may be a little bit more fun. But this one, because it was the first one where you got to see all three of them kind of going at it, uh, using all of their skills, it was the one that really stood out to me. There's a lot of really great acrobatic work in it. And I think the other thing I liked about it is 
this particular sequence had a lot of hand-to-hand stuff, and then the later fight, which is also a group fight, has a lot of different weaponry, and that really makes them kind of very, very different from each other. But I think those are the two standout fights in the movie. The only other one that was really of note is that Jackie Chan at one point... (laughs) This movie sounds ridiculous when you talk about it in pieces. He has been given... Uh, the duty to find a six-fingered man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, he goes back to this hotel because basically it's the only other character they've encountered that could possibly be this guy. Finds a six-fingered man, but in while he's there, he gets uh, accosted by a, a female fighter. I think she's named Lady Lou in the movie. And they have a one-on-one fight in this hotel where they kind of destroy parts of the hotel as they're fighting. That's a really fun one-on-one fight as well. I don't think it's as good as the group fights, but in terms of a one-on-one Jackie Chan fight in this movie, it did kind of feel like a showcase for him, which, you know, a lot of the other ones, they he doesn't really stand out as much in the group fights, but at least in this, he does get at least one fight where it's just like one-on-one against a really good fighter, uh, and it uh, I thought that was pretty impressive as well. Yeah, I'm... I... <laughs> You've won me over, Doug. That monk fight, I wasn't thinking about that, and that is as actually more interesting, again, because it is more hand-to-hand. Uh, but there is something about the the weapons in the final fight and the, the ways, like I said, Jackie Chan at one point steals various weapons from other characters and uses them against them, and I fucking love that. Uh, but when it comes to the ways that Jackie Chan shines... Uh, he, I think his most interesting fight is against this. Uh, she's the, what, the lover of the human dart, I guess? Yeah, uh, I guess so. <laughs> and uh, it's so ridiculous, guys. It's not, Let's be clear here. I, I would recommend this movie to anybody uh, who actually just wants to have a fun martial arts movie. This movie is fucking dumb. It's, it's a dumb movie. <laughs> and it's great for that. It's so good. <laughs> I mean, it is ridiculous. So let's... I do want to mention, by the way, that Bruce Lung in that final fight scene, he basically sports Wolverine claws. It's so good. Well, I think they're so. That's what I couldn't figure out. I think they're actually different knives. I thought they were knives that he has on his body that he has taken out that he hasn't used. Right, but they look like more than Wolverine claws. They're like because there's like five of them or something. Yeah, they look crazy. They're even better than Wolverine claws. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) They're like Freddy Krueger claws, really. (laughs) So let's talk about that that ending a little bit. So we have our group. They're heading over the mountain. And they eventually end up, because of the help of the six-fingered man, they end up in this uh, house. And this house is the house of the big baddie. The big bad guy, the big bandit, who runs this entire mountain of bandits. He has a lot of underlings. He has a whole room full of them. But there's one guy, very much, you know, has the white hair, very recognizable in these kind of movies. He is going to be the bad guy. So they bring in the sedan chair. They bring in all of our good guy characters. And what is revealed, Liam. <laughs> so, uh, he finally insists that they open up the sedan, and yes. they open up the sedan, and he's in the sedan. It's him. Yep. There's two of Same him. Same guy. There's two and of so them. the two of them have to fight, <laughs> because it's like, which one is the real one? And then it's revealed that the king of the bandits, whatever his name is, who's yep. been running the bandits for the last ten years, is actually the woman who runs the tavern, who seems like an elderly crazy woman, yes. who doesn't have any martial arts. She actually somehow turned the tables on the lord of the bandits, took over the bandits, and sent him into exile, and that the woman who hired Jackie Chan is his daughter, who doesn't yeah. live on the mountain, and they're all there to restore him to power. So yes. now he is now, he he defeats uh, the the crazy tavern lady beats her up rips 
rips her face off to rips reveal her face it's her. And throws her limp body to the ground. Yeah, so now she's dead. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I guess the movie's over. And then our three main characters reveal, oh, wait, we still have to take you to the Capitol. And he's like, no, you don't. This was all a trick to get me here. And they're like, oh, but you're a bandit, and we're going to take you to the Capitol. So you face justice. And Jack and Chan's like, because you killed my father. And the whole movie changes again, and they all got to fight all the bandits now. It is like... Such a triple cross. It's like, like a quadruple <laughs> chain of events. And by the end, it, it doesn't make any sense, but who cares? Because they're all fighting it. It's great. It doesn't even pause for a moment for them to consider, oh, this person, like Jackie Chan in particular, whose father was murdered by this man, uh, that that like we've been helping this guy for the entire movie so far get to this point. If he takes his lead as the leader of the bandits again, then that that's because of us. We helped this happen. Uh, and also, w- is it better or worse for the old hotel woman to be the leader of the bandits instead? That's why the part where the two bandit leaders, the, even though they look exactly the same, they fight each other. It's like, who are we supposed to hope wins this fight? Right. I have no 100%. idea. It's not clear <laughs> at all. Well, and even more so, it seems like like their whole vibe is like, especially the face ripper guys, that he's always honest and he doesn't like liars. And then by the end, it's like, was this all a ruse so you could get the bandit leader in, in the first place? Like, was that really <laughs> your goal from the beginning? I don't know. And it's not clear that they know. They just know. What we came here to kill a bandit leader, so whatever, that's what's gonna happen, buddy. That's like this is what's gonna this is what's going down. Also, the whole movie they're encountering like the bandits' underlings. Right. Why didn't he just go up to them and say, Look, it's me. I'm the real guy. That's the fucking woman from the hotel. She's wearing a fake mask. Let let's get together and just go stop her, right? I mean, maybe they wouldn't believe her at first, but believe him at first, but like that seems like as smart a way to approach this. As trying he to, he had sneak to get his own mountain. revenge, Doug. You're so not just. This is so Canadian of you. You just don't want the drama. He's got to do it this way. It makes total sense. So uh, I also like that he's very much like, "Huh, you want to take me to justice? That's not going to happen." And then they, our three characters, proceed to kill everybody, every single one of his underlings and his own daughter. And he, even at the end of that, he's like, "Well, I'll take you, kind of me against all three of you." And then that's how the movie ends. There's one final fight. With the three of them against him, um, he does pretty well at first until Bruce Lung's character throws some darts at his chest and uh, and seems to kind of uh, take him out of action. And then he grabs Bruce Lung and appears to kill him or almost kill him. All the characters jump towards him and the movie freeze frames and we never see him beaten in the final fight. Did you find that unusual at all, Liam? No, I've seen a few movies that end. Yeah, that way. me too. I think you're supposed to. I think you're supposed to get the idea that once his little metal breastplate comes off, and fucked. they stab him yeah. not once, not twice, but thrice directly <laughs> in the middle of his body. I think that's supposed to be like, well, he's done now. Like they're gonna, they're still gonna beat him up, but like he doesn't have a chance at this point. But to be fair, these are three of the toughest guys in the land. They yeah. have the three of them killed his entire army of bandits and his super tough uh, nieces and daughter. Yeah. And so, like, this guy must be super tough because he holds them off the whole time. And really yeah. only because he gets caught by a knife do they get the, the, the jump on him. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's not necessarily unsatisfying because you do, like you said, you get the impression that he's screwed. He, there's no way he's going to win. It's just so strange that, like, we don't know if Bruce Lung's character dies. It seems to imply that he might have been killed, but you just don't know for sure. You don't know what the fallout of any of this is. He's not being brought to the Capitol for justice anymore. The end result is that they went up a mountain and killed every bandit on the entire <laughs> fucking place. 
Seems Here's, like something wait, they could can just we back up to something too, Doug, that I might have yeah. missed. Sure. What happened with Jackie Chan getting poisoned? So he was okay. So he got poisoned when he went to the hotel, right? Um, and then uh, the hotel manager guy said that the woman had the antidote on her, so okay. he gave him the antidote. Otherwise, okay. he would have died in one week. I don't know why. Like that all doesn't make sense because this is another thing we didn't reveal. The hotel manager who we're supposed to think is like a good friend of theirs who's going to help them get the mountain. He also works for the bandit. <laughs> also, why did they even know about the six? Everyone's like, oh, of course, the six-fingered man. Sure, of course. We all know about the six-fingered man. Yeah. Nobody mentioned it till now. There's a whole other six-finger guy who's going to help you out. Nobody mentioned it. Like, what's going on? <laughs> uh, Liam, I want to talk a little bit uh, about the Star Wars music that appears <laughs> in this film. Every review of this movie, every commentary on it, everything mentions the Star Wars music. I was prepared for it. I knew that it was coming. And then the weird thing about it is that it doesn't enter the movie until about three quarters of the way through, and then it's used constantly for the rest of the movie. This, you know, uh, um, I don't know the name of the piece. I mean, certainly, uh, it's not like the main Star Wars theme, but it's certainly a lot of recognizable Star Wars music that appears in. I this think it's film. from. I think it's from when Luke is flying in the trench. I think yeah, I there's that. the trench, and there's a little bit of the the uh, the kind of like softer version of yeah, the main sure, theme sure, sure. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, was that a distraction for you, or was it more a, a pleasant distraction? In this movie? If I hadn't known it was coming, it would have taken me totally out of the moment. Like I would have been like, "Wait, what is that? Isn't that the Star Wars theme? What the fuck is going on?" Like I would have. It's the one that goes like, Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, it's no, it's fine. It's because I knew it was going to be there. It just and the the way that they use it, I was like, "Perfect. That's so fucking stupid. I love it." It's so ridiculous that in again, so in Jackie Chan's book, I am Jackie Chan. It ends with little summaries of all of his movies. That's what I read at the beginning of this section here. I don't know if Jackie Chan actually wrote these. Some of the language in it does not feel like it's in the voice of Jackie Chan. But the part where he says here, displaying an absence of originality, not to mention a lack of concern for copyright law. I mean, yes, that's the case. W using Star Wars music in your uh, low budget martial arts movie, it's it's it, it does stand out. But like. Every kung fu movie of this period uh -huh, used licensed uh -huh. music that they weren't supposed to. There's James Bond music in like <laughs> like a hundred different of these movies. I mean, it's it's distracting because of how iconic Star Wars exactly. is. Exactly. That's but right. It, but it at least it fits the film. Like, remember in Yes, Madam, when there's randomly Halloween music? Yes. Doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit the movie at all. And yet it's in there, and anyone who's watched the movie gets distracted, like, wait, wasn't that fucking Halloween music? You know what I mean? Like, it's like, yeah, it's a good movie, though. Like, the Halloween music aside, this, it's like, I don't know. For me, I, I also thought, well, they liked it. And, you know, it's 1978, right? Yeah, so, like, exactly. Star Wars is a big deal, <laughs> but it's not like they stole music from Return of the Jedi when, by the time Return of the Jedi <laughs> came out, Star Wars was like the biggest fucking deal. So, yeah. it would have been a little more noticeable. At this point, you're in Hong Kong. You kind of know what Star Wars is, but you kind of don't. It's like, just take it. Who cares? It's fine. You know what I mean? I also just like that it's used in a different context. Than, yeah. Like, it's, it's not used in a triumphant scene. It's just the background music as other things are happening. I think you even hear it for the first time when those Native American characters are all, like, standing around. And it's meant to be like, ooh, this is like a, a certain like a intense moment, and then the Star Wars music like, comes up. And it's just like, well, that's a completely different context than I'm used to hearing that music in. Liam O'Donnell, let's talk about Jackie Chan 
in the movie Magnificent Bodyguards from 1978. I think you've already said that he's kind of the standout character for you. I wonder what you would think of that character if it wasn't Jackie Chan, if it was some other actor. Do you think it would still appeal to you as much? If they were charming, yes. I think, don't get me wrong, this is not, how do I describe this? This is so far the best Jackie Chan role we've seen where Jackie Chan is still not being allowed to play Jackie Chan. Right. Right. It's not that, oh, he's he's secretly putting in some goofy stuff and being silly. He doesn't get that much leeway. He's not given that much room to stretch. And yet for the roles where he's been asked to maybe be more like someone that we don't recognize as Jackie Chan, it's pretty good. He's still allowed to do a lot of fun stuff. His fighting is very good. And there are a few moments where his charm is a little sassy. That makes me think a little bit of Jackie Chan, the character that I've come to know as Jackie Chan. So while it's not, you know, this is no fucking police story or Rumble the Bronx, of the movies that are like this, it's got to be one of his best. He's still fun. He's still more interesting than the other two leads. I just think he really is really good. I don't. I think when it comes to the sorts of people who were making money in kung fu when this movie came out, especially prior to this movie coming out, sure, a lot of them were not very interesting. They were more tough than they were charismatic. Yes. And so if one of those serious-ass motherfuckers had been in this role... It would have sucked. I think this movie would – it wouldn't be a bad movie, but it would be like maybe a third less good than it is. If it was Jimmy Wang Yu instead of Jackie Chan in that role, this yeah, movie no, would not you. be as good. Yeah. And I think that that is notable because I'm going to say something rather controversial here, which is that the charisma that Jackie Chan shows in this movie was not visible in 1976, right? Where two years sure. later, yeah. he, he, has, he has more confidence on film – He's more comfortable in front of a camera, and now he's able to show that charisma on screen. And the controversial thing I'm going to say is if he was to have made Snake in the Eagle Shadow in 1976, it would not have hit as hard as it now will in 1978 when we cover it in our next movie because he wasn't the performer. He was a physical performer. He probably had all the same martial arts skills, but he wasn't as comfortable in front of the camera in a way that would allow him to be funny on screen consistently like we will see in his next few movies. So even though this is a lot of kind of regrets that Jackie Chan has around in, this, in terms of this part of his career, I feel like you don't get what's about to come without leading up to this point, even if it must have seemed very slow to him. By the way, it's so ridiculous to think about you know the 10 episodes of this podcast that we've done. They only cover like a few years, right? We're only talking about the years like, like since the like 73 up until 78. And it, he's he's... He's been so frustrated in his career while making like five movies or six movies every year. Yeah, it's – but it's – I mean, but also it, it is not a big thing, but it is part of the formation of him. So I'm glad that yeah. we covered it all. But it is hard because it's so many movies you feel like, wow, look at all this output. And for him, he probably felt like he wasn't doing that much at all really. He was just getting going, you know? On the next episode of We Do Our Own Stunts uh, – Jackie Chan's career with Lo Wei is not ended, but he will be uh, because of the lack of success of a number of these films. By the way, Magnificent Bodyguards apparently was a bit of a box office success, uh, but Jackie Chan didn't take a lot of credit for it or didn't get a lot of the credit for it. And he doesn't like the film kind of personally, at least in his uh, in his reminiscing about it, as we've already seen. He was lent to another studio, and that studio would produce Snake in the Eagle's Shadow. Not only would this be Jackie Chan's first uh, film that kind of uh, would break him 
but also, it's the first directorial effort of a director that we're going to see and hear about a lot in the future, Yoon Woo Ping. On the next episode of We Do Our Own Stunts, 1978, Snake in the Eagle's Shadow. It's been a long time coming, Liam. I hope you're excited to finally kind of <laughs> breach the golden age of Jackie Chan films. Uh, more than excited, yes. <laughs> I hope now it doesn't seem like a big letdown. Maybe maybe the jump isn't going to be as large as we thought. I mean, that's the thing about uh, Snake and Crane Arts of Shaolin. We both enjoyed that so much. Right. Uh, you know, it, And we've already learned a lot of kind of the myth-making about, oh, I was making garbage, and then suddenly I made this movie that was really good, and people responded to it. We know that that's not strictly true. That said... Uh, it's been a while. I've seen Drunken Master a few times in the last couple of years, but it's been a while since I've seen Snake in the Eagle's Shadow. Bro, Very Snake in the Eagle's Shadow, he rips apart a bird. That's all you need to know. Bird rip apart. Perfect. <laughs> Is that supposed to be selling the movie? <laughs> yeah, it's so good. It's when I saw The first time I saw this movie, Doug, was on film at X-Fest in Philly, right. and I had no idea what to expect. And when it ends with that, I, as well as probably about 100 of my compatriots, stood up and gave a standing ovation for oh at least five God. minutes. <laughs> I don't know. I might exa- I might be exaggerating the response, but I certainly clapped. <laughs> Any vegans in that crowd? <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> uh, listeners, if you want to check out Magnificent Bodyguards, it's available in a number of different forms, but you can watch it right now for free with ads on the Midnight Pulp streaming service. So check that out over there. Liam, if people want to check out more episodes of We Do Our Own Stunts or other cinema smorgasbord podcasts, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, I think they should head over to Cinepunks.com. There's a whole family of podcasts over there. Uh, Wine and Cheese uh, has just returned after an extended COVID hiatus, uh, as well as new shows like Twitch of the Death Nerve and classics like Cinepunks and Horror Business. Um, But not only will they find uh, the latest episodes of all those podcasts there, they'll find some great writing as well. We just wrapped up our Cineween series where we featured a new piece of writing every day. That wasn't just our usual of film reviews or obvious culture writing there was also some poetry that we featured as well that i thought was really great yeah and and a really awesome original uh playlist by friend of the show robert scovarla featuring some music that like you can't find streaming right now that he put on this playlist so check it out it's great um of course if they just want to dive into the archive not only of uh we do our own stunts but the whole family of topics that we cover over at cinema smorgasbord they can head to cinemasmorgasbord.com there's an entire archive there of shows covering all manner of films uh and and occasionally tv too when doug forces me um they can also follow us on social media at cinema smorg on twitter or cinepunks on social media at c-i-n-e-p-u-n-x on all platforms uh and i guess they could follow us personally uh you're uh at doug underscore tilly that's t-i-l-l-e-y very good Uh uh and i'll I'll, I'll okay do it do it yeah, you're there at Liam Rules. That's R U L Z. I can't believe you took my T I L L E Y gig over there. I do I'm want gonna, to say I'm going to try to do it as often as I can. I, I do want to say Liam that uh, you know, Cineween is a regular uh, part of the Cinepunks landscape throughout the year. It's probably when mo- the most content in the most concentrated time occur all throughout. Uh, October, you see work being published on the site almost every day, uh, if not every day. 
And one of the things I liked about this year is that it was so diverse, both in terms of the people Agreed. producing the content and in terms of the content itself. So much great stuff over at Cinepunks.com to read and listen to and check out in general. Uh, as Liam said, you can check out all of our different podcasts devoted to all sorts of topics, including our recently launched uh, George Kennedy podcast. George Kennedy is my co-pilot, as well as our Alejandro Jodorowsky podcast, Jodorowsky, which is coming back very soon as well. Lots of podcasts over at Cinemasmorgasbord.com, on Twitter at Cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R-G. Leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice. We always appreciate it very, very much indeed. But Liam, we've used up all of our martial arts power, all of our Brazilian jiu-jitsu power, all of our uh, kung fu ability on this episode of We Do Our Own Stunts. We need to rest. We need to recharge our batteries, uh, really recharge them, because when we return, we're going to be talking about 1978's Snake in the Eagle's Shadow. Rip apart, bird! (laughs) Let's go! (laughs) 